ahead of us. They're doing the teaching aspect.
People can write character letters for all of those people, but the truth of fact of the matter is, no matter how good they try to be, if they murder somebody in one second, second of a fit of a, a rage, they, the judge will not be righteous if he lets them go. They have to pay the penalty for their sin. They have to pay for what they have done. They have to pay because they've fallen short of the standard of the law. And after a while, the judge will look at them and he may make their sentence lenient. But after a while, they have to come before the judge and the judge will take his gavel and he will say, guilty. And he will sentence them and they will be remanded into custody to pay the price for their sins. And that's where we were. We were in a court trial, and we had a prosecuting attorney, and he is so much of a prosecuting attorney that the Bible calls him an accuser. He is an accuser of the brethren. His name that we have given him means adversary. That's the, that's the description that we have given him. We call him the Satan. Satan, the adversary, he is the accuser of the brethren. And as Adam sinned, and we saw last week through our illustrations, and sin came into the world, we have all been affected, affected, and infected by sin. Yes. And because of that, all of us have one sentence. When we come out of the womb into the world, and that womb is not that we're a good person, that's not that we're nice. The, the truth of the matter is that we come out and we're crying, and the judge has to give a pronouncement, guilty. Why? Because the DNA of sin is in us. Yes. We are born bad, like we talked about last week. Bad to the bone. If you ask the average person, why aren't they seeking God? Because we affirm our kids all the time. We give them trophies when they don't win anything. We tell them that they're the best in the world. And we never tell them that sometimes you do things and it's not okay. That there is a standard that must be met and it must be matched. And Paul begins to talk to all three kinds of people. He starts with the debased person who's gone way out and has forgotten completely about God. And Romans 1.18-22 says that he's turned them over to a depraved mind. Those people who have just do whatever they want to do. And not only do they do it, they bring along other people to do it. And when they bring along other people to do it, they are, they are not, not ashamed of what they're doing. There is no shame. They're proud of what they're doing. They show pride. There is nothing that has pride that's attached to God because the Bible says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Anytime you see the word pride, it is the antithesis of what God is. The Bible says, lay hands suddenly no man that unless he falls into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, when people come into your fellowship, don't put them in positions real quick. Why? Because they may get the big head because they'll do what Satan did and get pride. Satan said in Isaiah that I will lift my, uh, my throne above that of the Almighty and that pride condemned them. And then he went on the next week as we begin to talk to those people who we would call secular moralists, people that have some kind of moral code, but it is not seated in God's righteousness. It is seated in societal norms, which means that whatever the culture says is normal is normal. So that's why some things that would be abnormal 30 or 40 years ago are very present today because we have people that are somewhat moral, but they don't allow God to decide their morals. They allow the culture and legislation 
tradition and popular culture and social media to tell them what's right instead of God telling them what's right. And then he goes into the third person. He's not going to leave the church out. He comes into the church and says, even you, the Jew, even us, the Christian, who are under this thing called sin, that we are all coming into the world under sin and we have a sin nature and when you come into those things what he is doing is he's killing your pride. I'm not the best swimmer in the world but this is the thing that I learned from swimming when I talked to a lifeguard. He says when I tried to save people, I never tried to save them facing them because not only will they get scared, they'll grab alone, they'll kill themselves and me too. What I have to do is I have to sneak up on them and I gotta knock them out. And when I knock them out, although that seems brutal, what it does, it makes them stop struggling. And when they stop struggling, then they get into a position where they can be saved. What we have been going through in the first three books of Romans is the spiritual knockout. It's that spiritual knockout that says, stop trying to be right and do it on your own. Stop trying to be right by your works. Stop trying to be right by the things that you do. No man can be made right by the law. You don't have enough in you to be right with God. And that's why he's trying to save you. But the reason many of us will not be saved is because we think we can save ourselves. We think we can fix our lives. We think we can do everything. That, that we think we've learned enough in life to get by and navigate in life. Well, let me ask you a question. How's that working out for you? <laughs> do you have everything you need in your mind? Well, well and do you have peace in your heart if you're trying to do it on your own? That no man can be made right by the law. This is a legal standard. He made the law of God. And we see it in Exodus 20 that the law is right and the law is holy and it's pure. And it shows us our sin. But the problem is that we can't keep it. And I, I heard a preacher giving this example. It's not my example, but it's the best example that I can think of. He said it's just as if we had a few people. Uh, come here, Brother Rodney. Come here. Uh, come here, Terry. Uh, let me find somebody else. Come here, Brother Dave. We have three people that come up and, and they have to jump across the, the Grand Canyon and here it is, Terry. See, I call him Terry. He, he's about five eight, so he's trying to jump across the Grand Canyon on his own, run and jump real quick. I don't think he made it, do you? I don't, I don't, I don't think he made it. So we're gonna need somebody that's a little bit, a little bit, a little bit stronger than him. His brother Dad, he prays all the time and he loves the Lord and all that. I need you to jump from here to the end of that stage. Go ahead, jump. Oh, he got close, but I, I don't think he made it. Here it is, brother. I hope he did good, brother. I hope he did good. <laughs> But now he is, and he's taller than everybody else. I want you to see how far you can jump from here to the end of that state. Can you get across the Grand Canyon? Can you get across there? See, he even cheated, and he still didn't make it. You see that? That's what we do in the world. We try to make ourselves right with God. And it's as silly as an Olympic, uh, Olympic long jumper trying to jump the little jump over the Grand Canyon, and he can jump, Father, and he looks back at you, and he said, look, you're in the church, but I pray longer. I've been able to pray longer. I tithe better. I fast better. It don't matter. All three of y'all going to die because you can't make it to the end. No matter how good you try to be, you don't have enough strength to get to the other side. You don't have anything to be You need to talk to Jesus. Somebody said, where is the gap? See, the only thing that can bridge the gap is, is, is a wooden plank. If we have a wooden plank, there's a bridge.
and that bridge goes horizontal and it goes vertical yeah. and it across those vertical planks of the cross Ooh. to get to the other side. And Jesus is that cross that allows us to get from here to there. And when our strength will go, he helps us with it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but, but I have to realize the only way to get to the beginning of God, you have to come to the end of yourself. Oh, yeah. See, that's why people are struggling because they think that just because they, they come home to religion, that that makes them right with God. That doesn't make you right with God. He said, no man can be justified. Thank you, brother. Keep it going. By the works of the law. But he says in verse 21, every step back, said, but now. But now. But now. It, it, it's important because he is giving us uh, something that has come before. He said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What he is saying is, we are in debtor's court and our credit score is not good enough to get us into heaven. Somebody can identify with that, can't you, that your credit score, your credit is not just where it needs to be. Anybody ever been there where your credit is not where it needs to be and you just can't get where you need to get or get what you want to get because although you can see the prize, you don't qualify. There's a place called heaven, Tehran, and no matter how much we want to go, unless we have somebody to co-sign for us, as a matter of fact, not co-sign, but move out of the way and pay the debt entirely for us, we can't get in. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ oh, that we are saved. He oh, paid a debt that I couldn't pay. He paid something that I didn't know. This is important. This is a transitional statement, hallelujah. But now, if I said, but now, this is indicating that a change has taken place, that by yourself you couldn't be justified by the works of the law. It's indicating that a change has taken place and that we were without hope. We were under condemnation. Christians don't have to condemn anybody. One of the most famous scriptures in the Bible is John 3.16. You see people holding up the Bible, holding up that scripture at baseball games and everywhere, and it sounds good, but they do what most Christians do, Chanel. They only read the part that they like. <laughs> you don't know any Christians like that, do you? You only read the parts of the Bible that you like, you amen, when the preacher's talking about somebody else, and then you get mad and something not coming back next week when he starts stepping on your toe. Has anybody ever done something like that? They go in and they love it when it says, for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son. You can help me quote it. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And they forget John 3, 17. And the first part sounds really good. It says, for God did not send, read it with me, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But this is what we need to know. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Yeah. You're already drowning, whether you know it or not, if you don't have Jesus. You're already perishing, whether you know it or not, if you don't have Jesus. The Bible says that the gospel is foolish. It is foolish to those who are perishing. That we're not born good, that we're born bad, and our spiritual credit score will never be high enough to purchase righteousness, and all of humankind 
no matter where they go and how good you try to be, no matter how much you pay your taxes and send extra to the IRS, no matter how much you try to help little kiddies and old, old ladies across the street, you've got the same diagnosis unless Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Guilty. Oh, yeah. But now, he talks about God giving us righteousness. And in the Greek, that word uh, that I'm about to butcher in the Greek is dikoesis, which is justification, which he uses this term. And I talked to you and told you that God is a legal God, and that is a legal term. That's why he uses it. The word, everybody say justification. justification. This is important for us to know, because justification is something that split the church. The first century church came down into what we call the Holy Catholic Church. And about 1500, there was a monk named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a monk in Wittenberg, Germany. And Martin Luther wanted to become right with God. And so he became a monk. And he began to beat himself and scourge himself and starve himself. And, and he, he, wouldn't take, he wouldn't have a wife or anything like that. He didn't have a life that I ended at all. But he was doing all that, trying to be good with God and coming to the end of himself. And he began to teach a Bible study. And it was on the book of Romans. And he came to Romans chapter 3. And what he read in Romans chapter 3 is the reason that you are sitting in these pews. It doesn't matter what faith you come from. He reads something that changes his mind. He realizes that a man cannot be made right with God by how many indulgences he gets. There is no purgatory. Man cannot be made right by his works. He has to depend on the legal acquittal of God that he is justified by faith. Justification is a legal uh, a legal acquittal or being made right in our Christian theology. It says this, it's the act by which God moves a willing person from a state of sin, injustice, to a state of grace. Hallelujah. That God changes our, 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 our classification. He moves us from one spot to another. Justification is important for us to know because this is why you are called Protestant. No matter what denomination you are, because Martin Luther decided to protest. And this is what he wrote. Martin Luther wrote this. And, and this comes from a book called Faith Life. It's about Martin Luther himself. Uh, and, and this is what he writes in, in one of his works, volume 23, works of Luther from the Gospel of St. John. He writes this so you can see what his mindset is. He says, only faith in, our, in Christ is our righteousness. And we take our name Christian from Christ, and by Christ we are made saints. The Father brings you to the Son without the aid of your works and merits. The article of the righteousness of his faith is that one believes in Christ. And you have gained righteousness, this righteousness, without works, fasting, prayer, or anything else. It has been given to you from heaven. No matter what you do and what prayer you pray, you can't save yourself. He says it's the gift of God, not a worse, lest any man should boast that we can't take any credit for our salvation. The relationship, what Martin Luther is letting us know, is that the relationship has been righted if we put our faith in Jesus. And we see here in verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness or the right standing, the legal clearance of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, that without the law, you are still righteous. You've been trying this all your years. And now you have to realize you have to depend on God and he has made you right. 
and he says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, it sounds contradictory, but you have to realize he's talking to a Jewish congregation, and when they hear the word law and prophets, they hear Bible. That's what they hear, because that's what they call the Bible. He said the Bible bears witness, basically, to the law, that Bible of the day, but this is the thing, that the righteousness of God has been manifested, everybody say, apart from Apart from the law, you don't have to do anything to, to, to be right with God. That's, that's the good news. He says, why? He says, it's available to all. Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for not just some who believe, not just for the rich, not just for the poor, not just for this political party, and that one, not just for this social class, and that one, not just for this ethnicity, uh, that one, but for all who have believed. He says this. And this is one of the most quote, misquoted scriptures in the Bible, Romans 3.23, because they use it as an excuse that said, oh, I can, I, God loves me, I can get away with whatever I want. Matter of fact, you can't judge me for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what Jesus is saying is, give <laughs> That's not what that scripture means. It means that his grace is available to all because we all need it. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You are not sitting in your pew right now looking at a superman. You are sitting in your pew looking at a broken man telling you about a powerful God who will heal you. If it had to do with my merit, I would not be standing here because God knows I'm not perfect and I got more issues than time magazine. But at the end of the day, it's not by my works that I'm saved, but it's by the grace of God. Because many times we try to reintroduce works, and we do it this way. We say just like Disney Plus or, or Discovery Plus, we want Jesus Plus. We want Jesus Plus, you got to do this. Jesus, but you got you to gotta be baptized in this name. Jesus, but you got to speak in tongues this way. Jesus, but this, and Jesus, but that. But this says Jesus, period. Amen. Amen. All the other stuff is great. All the other stuff we affirm, we believe in all the gifts of the Spirit here. We believe in that, but here's the thing. There's only one thing you need to do to be saved. The Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. Repent. If every one of you for the remission of your sin, that time the refreshing shall come from the Lord. You may never speak in tongues, but guess what? If you can speak to Jesus and say, I give you my heart, I'll see you on the other side. We make divisions in Christianity. We have spirit-filled Christians, non-spirit-filled Christians here. I'm a spirit-filled Christian. We have all sorts of people, and we try to use that as pride to make ourselves look better than the other people, but we are all under one. The only thing that a denomination does, it's a divider. What do you do with a denominator in, in math? You divide. There's ways for us to divide, but here's the truth of the matter is, no matter what name is on the front of your church, we all under the same condition. That sinner needed in the grace of Jesus Christ for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I'm so grateful that although I have more than enough sin for myself, God has more than enough Oh, no, no, no. 
Lord God, of the glory of God, justified by grace and the gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God used. Here's that other word. Put it up on the screen. Everybody say propitiation. Propitiation. We'll say it again because some people never seen that word and that's a lot of syllables. Somebody say it again. Propitiation. We're raising smart Christians here. We're raising up smart Christians. Everybody who wants to be a smart Christian. Um, uh, you shouldn't raise your hand on that, but that's okay. <laughs> I want to know what I believe and why I believe it. Not only is am I justified, but why am I justified? Because Christ is my propitiation. How, how is he my propitiation? Here, here's the deal. That sin still has to have the wrath of God. It has to be poured out on somebody for something. And God gave a foreshadowing in the Old Testament when he used sacrifice. And he used that sacrifice and they would go in and, and go to shatter the blood of an animal in the temple and they would put it on what was called the Bema Seat. And, and, and on that Bema Seat they would sprinkle blood and that blood was to set for the atonement. That's a made up word but it, it's used, it's an English word. It's actually three words together. Everybody say atonement. That, that's the Old Testament version of that. It literally, if you look at it, it says at one minute. In other words, I'm separated from God, but this blood washes away my sins or at least covers it and brings me back into fellowship with God. The only problem with that is that the priest who is, is, is giving the sacrifice, he's in the same shape that I am. He's on the sin too. So year after year, this sacrifice is done. Year after year, they do this sacrifice. And they used to, when he goes to the temple, they would tie a rope around his waist and bells because it was a holy place for God. And the reason they put those bells on him is because they knew if you weren't right before the Lord during that time, that you weren't going to come back out alive. And they weren't dumb enough to go into their cells. When the bells start ringing, they would just... <laughs> Next. <laughs> anybody else want anybody else want to sacrifice today? No, that's okay. But he they would pull out because he was a holy God and he was trying in the Old Testament to give us a foreshadowing. Everybody said foreshadowing. He's giving us a foreshadowing. The Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. Everything he did in the old was so when we got to the new, we could see the revelation and realize that mere man couldn't write this across 1,500 years with tons of people writing it in, in, in three different languages and, and pull all these things together and it be as accurate as it is. He set up a system and fulfilled the system all by himself. Oh, Jesus. He, he set up a system all by himself and he put it on the mercy seat. That was giving us a pardon. That was giving us a reprieve. But God knew that would last forever because the priest had sinned and he needed a sinless and a spotless sacrifice to pour out his wrath on. And, and, and I hear, hear the word saying, who will go? And I heard somebody say, send me. I'll go. Jesus came and he wrapped himself. One of the third, one of the three parts of God. He, he brought himself and wrapped himself in flesh and he came here and lived a sinless life. And it's because he lived a sinless life for an example to us, the Bible says that he was in all points tempted as we were, yet he was without sin. Because he was sinless, he had the right to lay down on that altar and be sacrificed. And not only did he do it, but here's the thing, he did it in the most painful way that it could be done. For Psalms 22 talks about the crucifixion of Christ. This is how you know God is real, brother Bob. He talks about the crucifixion of Christ in Psalms 22. The only problem is Jesus won't be around for another thousand years and crucifixion won't
invented for another 200. 200 years before crucifixion was even invented, the prophet had foretold of the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucifixion, which was made by the Persians and, and perfected by the Romans, was a brutal type of death. This is the type of death we should have died. Some of you, for the new people, I'll let you know what crucifixion is like. It is the most brutal and horrible, uh, horrible type of way to die. So much so that it has its own word. When you say, I have a headache, what kind of pain do you have? You have excruciating pain. That's where the word comes from. That is so brutal that when they whip you, they use what's called a cat of nine tails. They tie your hands to a pole with your body butt stark naked. And they take a, a cat of nine tails, which is a whip that has little beads to soften the flesh and little shards of metal to rip the flesh. And they begin to take it and they wrap it around you. And if it wraps around your eye, it just wraps around you. And it begins to rip the flesh from your body. So much so that many people never even made it to crucifixion because the cat of nine tail was just that brutal. It had been known that some people, even if they got a hold of a rib, when they pulled back the ribs, Sister Pat would just go flying. That's how brutal, excruciating crucifixion is. Before he even got there, he had already been beaten all night long. He had already had thorns of crown put in his head and his skull down two inches long, down in the middle of his skull. Why is he doing this? Because it's what I deserve. He's whipped all night long, but, but, but within an inch of his life. We, we whitewash, we whitewash uh, crucifixion because we don't want people to be scared for, it, for Easter. But I'm just going to tell you, if you don't come back, you'll know, at least you'll know what Jesus did for you. It, it's brutal. And he's embarrassed. Why? Because he has no clothing. One of the most shameful things that could be done in the Hebrew culture, they don't even want you to see the ankles. And here it is, Jesus is butt start naked. Being yes. beaten with flesh, ripping from his body. And after the flesh ripped from his body, he spit on and hit with rods and beaten. Ever been beaten with a nice stick? <laughs> Brother Mike tell, probably tell you what that's like because he, he was a police officer. Nice sticks don't feel good. <laughs> They're beaten with rods. Wow, he is dying. And as he goes down through what we call the Via Della Rosa now in Jerusalem, it's a mall center. In other words, that's where everybody congregates to buy stuff. So here it is. They beat him threw a slight robe on him, and here he is without hardly any clothes, and his back has been beaten, and he's using a used cross that's been used for used wood because the Romans have been crucifying people for years sometimes. They have been known to crucify so many people down the street that they couldn't find wood for miles. They used it as a scare tactic, and here he is with his body raw and beaten and bruised and has to put a non-smooth piece of wood on his back that's about 100 pounds, and he has to drag down through the middle of the streets. Can you imagine being going to Walmart and you're looking at Walmart and all of a sudden a beaten and bloody man just walking down the aisle? That's what it's like. He is being humiliated in front of everybody. He is being punished in front of everybody. Everybody has to watch his shame. Everybody has to watch his humiliation. And while he can barely breathe and while he's barely recognizable from the beating that he's taken on his face, the Bible said that he fell and a dude from Africa named Simon the Serene picked up his cross, but medical experts say that if he fell with that cross beam on his back, that it would be 
the, the equivalent of actually having a head-on collision and the steering wheel hitting you in the chest. So now he has chest contusion and he's beaten and he's bloody and he can't see and his face is disfigured and he's mangled to death and he, now he can't bleed and if nobody helps him, he's going to internally bleed to death. But somehow he finds the strength. He could have turned back, but somehow he looked down and he saw you and he saw me and he found a way to get himself up and keep going down the road to the cross. And if he gets down to the road to this cross and they turn him on his back. See, the Romans perfected the crucifixion system. You know how they perfected it? But what the Persians didn't realize is that you can make somebody last for up to nine, ten days, two weeks on the cross. See, what makes you, when you get on the cross, what kills you is this. When you hang, it closes off your, your lungs. It puts you in a position like similar to what George Floyd was put in. That's exactly what it does. And it cuts off your breath and it suffocates you. So what they did was they put something under his feet so he could push himself up every now and then to get air. So here he is in front of his mama with no clothes on. Unrecognizable. People spitting on him and jeering him. Saying, he said he saved others. Why can't he save himself? He who created the sun and the moon and has enough power to create or destroy the world as many times as he wants. And here it is, the ones he created are looking at him and jeering and spitting on him and making fun of him. And he can at any time stop this, but why doesn't he? He doesn't because he sees you victory. And he knows if he doesn't go through this cross, you have no hope. And when they put him on the cross, the two most sensitive nerve centers in your body are in your feet and in your hands. And they take train spikes that are nine inches long and they slam them through right through these two ribs, these two ribs. Why? So to have enough to support us. And now here he is with his back all out and he's asphyxiating because when you're in this situation you are, can't breathe and so carbon monoxide builds up you begin to die and you begin to pass out and the only way you get a little air is every now and then you get just enough strength to push yourself back up but uh oh his back is ripped apart so he has excruciating pain coming through his hands and his feet and has to find the strength to push himself up on a raw back, on a jagged piece of wood, just to get breath. And somehow has in his heart the capacity to look at the people who did this to him and say, Father, forgive them. Because they don't realize what they're doing. There are some people in this room who probably haven't spoke to people online for 20 or 30 years, and here they are beating him, killing him, and he has enough love in his heart to ask the Father to forgive them. For they know not what they do. He has enough presence of mind to worry about his mama and stop dying and look at his friend John and say, Behold, thou new son, take care of my mama. He has enough presence of mind that while his body is going and the catastrophic shock and his heart is going out that, and he's slowly dying, that he's looking around and he's beginning to see all of these people for which he is dying. And he is dying in the most brutal and the most horrific.
anyone could possibly die. And at any time, he could call his father and he could stop the process. But why didn't he? Because he saw you turn on. And he knew no matter where you were in the world that you'd be sitting in this church today. No matter what you've done in your life, he knows you'd be sitting right here today and you can hear what he's doing for you. Dying and beaten and bloody and excruciating pain. Body consistently shutting down. And, and this is what they would do after a while just to have pity on the poor people who were dying, who could literally sit there and die for days. They would take a hammer, a sledgehammer, a maul. When I was little, in, in, in the country, we would take these big hammers and we'd put them in these things, look like axe head called maul, and we would break them, we would break them and break up open wood and things like that. Uh, and, and they're using this hammer and this maul, but what they would use it for, they would use it to break their legs. Because once I break your legs, then you can no longer push yourself up and you'll suffocate and die. And Jesus had been through so much excruciating pain that didn't just start there. It started in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Jesus is saying, I'm depressed beyond measure. Why? To sweat the blood of mitigating the drop out of his body. Why? Because he's not scared of the cross as much as he's scared of what's about to be poured on him, which is the wrath of God. He says, if it's possible, let this cup, this cup of God wrath pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It is God's wrath that is poured on Jesus at the cross. He's paying our fine. It should have been me up there. It should have been you up there. Sentenced to death. He didn't do anything to deserve it. All the sin I've ever done, I did on my own. It wasn't nobody's fault for mine. I can make all the excuses in the world, but if I'm honest, I sin because I'm sinful and I'm a sinner and there's no excuse for it. And the world will be better when we stop making excuses for our bad behavior and say, it's not the man, it's not social, it's not society, it's not this or that, it's not my mama didn't love and my daddy wasn't there. It's I'm a sinner and I'm guilty and I'm guilty and he died to death that I should have died. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation means that he's the substitute. Everybody say substitute. That the wrath of God that was supposed to be poured on us was poured on him. And he felt the weight of every sin. He felt the weight of every addiction to pornography. He felt the weight of every rebellious and unsubmissive spouse. He felt the weight of every unloving person. He felt the weight of every murderer and adulterer. And it was all on his body until the point when they got ready to break his legs that it was so bad. They said they stuck him in his side and water and blood came out. If you talk to a doctor, they will tell you that the reason this is is that's pericardial fluid. What does that mean? That he was under so much so much pressure that his heart exploded, which means he died of a broken heart. A heart that was physically broken, but also spiritually broken as he watched his creation walking through saying, I don't need God, I can do it on my own. I'm done with 
the Jesus stuff. That's like so so 2000s, early 2000s. I'm, I'm just I'm gonna do me now. I'm gonna find some crystals of some new age. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna live how I want. I identify as a, as, as a piece of squash today, and that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make up my own rules. I I, I identify as a grasshopper tomorrow. Somebody please tell me how you identify as a midget. Now that'd be nice. <laughs> We, can, we want to do everything we want to do. And his heart was looking at us so lost. And it was really, really broken. Anguish. Knowing that although I'm still doing this, there's some that still won't make it. There's some that will still reject me and go their own way. But they can't say it's not because I didn't give everything I had. They can't say that it's not because I laid off uh, all my glory and I came down and I lived 33 years and, and I ate food and I lived and I knew what temptation was like and I lived a sinless life. They can't say that I didn't give a death that wasn't even mine for them. So when I when they come before me and the wrath of God has been satisfied, they can't look at me and say, how could you dare send me to hell?
why is this important for you to know? Pastor, I believe this and I'm saved, but there are many people out there that don't believe it, and there's only one of me, and there are so many of you, and it's going by the week. You know what? You can take this card armed with what you know, and you can say, I don't know it all, but I do know this, that God sent his son to die for you. And I can't explain it all. I'm not a Bible theologian, but why don't you show up on Sunday? I promise you, he got something good for you, and you don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't need money. The Bible says, come ye who have no money. Come by and eat. Hallelujah. You don't need money. You don't need Something about. 